Welcome to the God Notes Podcast. My name is Justin Lee, and as always, I'm so glad to have you here with me today. I've mentioned it multiple times on this podcast before, but really what we're doing is going through the little notes, the little nuggets that I've received from God through study, through prayer, and things like that. And often it's the notes that I have that I share with you in this podcast that spawn the the larger teaching episodes on the More God, Less Me podcast. It's a lot of times with the little things that God gives me or even the compilation of things over time that I get and study that all seem to be about one specific subject or one specific thought that grow and become a more full teaching message. And so the first note that I have for you today actually is what spawned a recent teaching message. And the way that things have worked out, because I've had so many little little God notes and I've gone so long-winded maybe on this, uh, this uh, podcast in the past, that this is actually coming out after two episodes of the More God, Less Me podcast, but after the teaching episode regarding the same subject has come out. And so the note I have is, why God gives authority to some but not others. And that spawned the recent episodes on understanding God-given authority. And if you've not listened to that episode of podcast, I highly recommend you do. And then you follow, you listen to the following episode that talks about how to accept your authority from God because it seems like there's really two camps in the church. You either have people who struggle to accept authority and want authority for themselves, or you have those who really are good at accepting the authority God has given others but struggle to accept the authority that God is trying to call them to. And so I put both those episodes out, and I think that God really spoke to me through them and allowed me to be able to teach those subjects well. But, like I said, this note is actually what spawned that. But I still think there's some things that maybe I didn't cover exclusively in those, or in case you just want a taste of what that episode will be like, then I'm going to go ahead and read that note for you right now. It says, If we are honest, it can at times be hard to understand why God places some people in a place of authority but not others, especially with verses that tell us God is not a respecter of persons, meaning that God does not like one person more than another but views all people equally. We can take this to mean that anyone can be used of God in any way. But still we see in the church that some people receive higher positions than others, and it can be easy to struggle to understand why. But asking such questions and failing to trust a judgment of God can cause strife in the body. We see no greater example of this than in the life of Moses and all that he faced as the leader of Israel through the desert. The authority of Moses is questioned multiple times by other Israelites. In these moments where his authority is questioned, we are able to see why God chose him over everyone else. It's not because God simply preferred him over the rest of the people of Israel. It's because of his humble heart and his love for the people of God. When his authority is challenged by both his siblings and by Korah, we see Moses stop and cry out to God on behalf of the people. Moses was not a self-seeking man, neither was he quick-tempered. Not to say that he wasn't pushed to his breaking point a few times. Still, he didn't want what was best for him at all costs. He wanted what was best for the whole of God's people. But those who questioned the authority of Moses were not this way. They wanted to be on top, to have a great name, and to be the person in charge. This is evident in their actions and speeches forever recorded in numbers. This is why they didn't get picked, and Moses did. When tough times came... They would not have gone to God in intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. Instead, because of hurt egos and broken pride, they would have most likely chose to step back and watch as God destroyed them or prayed for him to do so. But Moses was not this way. No matter what the people did to him, he, to him and even God, Moses continued to intercede with God on their behalf, crying out that God might forgive them of their trespasses. It almost seems to me as though Moses was the only man for the job. 
as God sought him in the wilderness to return to Egypt to free the Israelites. Even when Moses tried to get away from the job by claiming he wasn't capable, God still wouldn't let him off, but continued to make a way for him to be used. This shows that while there were many other men in Israel, some of whom may have been gifted speakers, they were not the right person for the job because they did not share the heart of Moses. And that's just the thing. While God is no respecter of persons, he does look past what we can see and make his, makes his judgments based on the heart. The Bible is clear that God searches the motives of the heart. Those who are wicked and self-serving, or those with wicked and self-serving motives will never receive authority from God. They may be able to produce some counterfeit versions of God's authority and amass a following like Korah did, but we are able to see how that worked out for him in the scripture. All this is to say that we can trust that God has placed the right person in authority. When we desire someone's position of authority and want to challenge or question them, believing we are so much better than they are or just as worthy, we are doing nothing different than Korah did and showing why we weren't chosen in the first place, as well as why they were. If we want to one day find ourselves in a position of authority in the church, then we must humble ourselves before God and develop a love for his people that is deeper than our love for ourselves. That's the kind of leader Moses was, and we can trust that is still the kind of leader that God is looking for today. God doesn't seek people who think that they are so much better than everyone else to be the people who he uses to lead others. God seeks those who are humble, who are willing to serve others and put others first. I mean, that's what we example we have from Jesus was a leader who was willing to step down and serve those he was supposed to be leading. That is what God is calling for in leadership. And so sometimes when we have a leader, it may not look like the leader that we expect or that we desire but we can believe that God has a purpose for them and that God would not call them without a reason. That doesn't mean that their teaching is always right. That doesn't mean things like that. And we should still check their teaching. And we get into that in the other episode of the podcast. But we can trust the authority while still testing the teaching. We can trust that God has given somebody authority while making sure that what they're teaching us is from the Word of God. If you think about the Berean church, they trusted the authority of Paul when he came and preached to them, but they still tested the teaching that he brought against the scriptures to make sure what he said was true before they placed their faith in it, and we should be no different. However, we should continue to respect authority that God gives in the church. God is the one who doles out authority in the church. God is the one who sets uh, uh, preachers and teachers and apostles and prophets. That's what the Bible tells us. And we should trust the authority that God gives individuals. It's not our place to question their authority. It's not our place to question a lot of things. The only thing that we should question is if they're trying to teach false doctrine. And in that case, there's a lot of times where we misunderstand what they were trying to say or they misspoke or misquoted. There's a lot of times where we want to jump to conclusions, but at the end of the day, we can find a common ground. And if we just simply go to that person and try to clarify what they were saying, try to clarify the truth with them, a lot of times the truth will win out and it'll actually turn out that that person wasn't trying to lead you astray in the first place. But we have to understand that God is going to give people authority based on what he can see and not what we can see. And sometimes it's the truth. When we challenge the authority that someone has, when we come against their authority, when we question all of their, their actions and you know, want to judge them from a judgmental standpoint, not from a, I wonder why they did that, right? Because there's questions that are just like, I am kind of curious, why are we doing it this way or that way? And they tell you, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I just didn't know the full story and I appreciate having the full story. But when you question things and question things to other people and you never take it to that person in an attempt to divide and cause strife within the body, 
that's showing you why you're not in that position. Or if you're trying to discredit somebody by your questions, then that shows you why you're not in that position and they are. But there are good questions and there's bad questions. And it's not a bad thing to want to question certain things, but we shouldn't question our teachers and the authority that they have from God in our lives. We should trust that God is going to make the right decision, that God's going to put us in the right place, and that if we are actually following after the will of God, if we are firm in our understanding of the Bible, if we know the Bible inside and out, that we'll be able to be in a church and recognize true teaching and can trust that a person who's teaching the truth is also going to be a person who has been called and really is being used by God, that they're not a false teacher, because the signs of a false teacher are evident. We'll be able to see them by their fruit, is what Jesus told us, and it'll be very evident who is authentic and real and who isn't to the person who spends time in God's Word. And if you spend time in God's Word and you find somebody who's teaching the truth, then you can trust the authority that God has given them. But if we're going to be completely honest, somebody who's not spending time in the Word of God, and even if they end up in a church that is a church with a trustworthy pastor who has God-given authority, they may still struggle to, to, to accept that authority because they're not in the place with God that they ought to be, and they don't know the things of God in the way that, honestly, they should. That's just a simple truth. It might sound harsh or mean, but that is the simple truth. But at the end of the day, what we see, in especially in the book of Exodus, is that God is clear that the Israelites, or the book of Exodus and Numbers is clear that the Israelites were to follow the authority that God had established. Well, if we believe that God is still calling people to certain purposes in the church, and we believe that our pastors have been called to the position that they hold, then we should simply humble ourselves and respect their authority. And when we have questions, ask them directly, because I'm sure that they'll be willing to answer any concerns that you may have and actually help you to understand where they're coming from and the things that you may not know or that you may miss. And that's fine. But that doesn't mean that you should not respect the authority that God has given them. And that you should understand that there are reasons that God calls people that we are unable to see. Just like the Israelites couldn't understand why Moses, but they needed Moses because nobody else could do what Moses did and could protect them in the way that Moses did and could love them in the way that Moses did. Nobody else was going to be who Moses was to them. They needed Moses. And Moses needed them just as much. Because Moses wouldn't have been able to accomplish all for God that those early Israelites did on their way to the promised land. Even though they messed up and even though they did these things, they still constructed the tabernacle and all the things that went with it. And it was through Moses' leadership that those things were able to happen. But without Moses, that wouldn't have happened. But Moses, without the people, would also not have been able to see the tabernacle constructed. So it takes everybody, and everybody has an important role. And that's what Korah loses sight of, because he was a Levite. So he had the position... He had a position in the church that was so important. He had a hand in the tabernacle. He was of the Levitical priesthood, and yet he still wanted more. He wasn't satisfied where he was at, and he saw a position that he desired, and he wanted to take it for himself, which shows, again, that he had the wrong heart. We need to respect the authority that God gives and understand that God gives authority to some people and not others for a multitude of reasons, but many of those reasons are based on what they are capable of, and the heart that they have, and the true motives that they have underneath. God has a reason and a purpose and a plan for where he places everybody within his church, and we can trust that God is not going to put us in a place that's beneath us, or and he's not going to raise people to a position that's above them. If God is in control, then every piece will be where it is supposed to be. All right, so transitioning to the next note, 
It's titled Walking Past the Broken. Most, as they read the account of the Good Samaritan, see themselves as the hero, when in reality they are just like the scribe or the Pharisee, avoiding those who are truly broken, bruised, and in need. You may think, I would never do that. I would never ignore or simply walk past someone beaten in the streets. And that may be true physically. But we do the same thing spiritually every day as we walk past people who are struggling, hurting, and in desperate need of the life-changing truth we possess. I feel like it's every Bible story that we look at, or biblical account. I try to not say Bible story because I don't want it to sound like stories because these are true life things that happen. But anyways, every time that we look at an account from the Bible, I feel like as humans, we want to put ourselves in the position of the Good Samaritan or of David. We want to put ourselves in the hero position of the story. And the truth of the matter is, we're not always the hero in the story. A lot of times we are you know, not the villain, but maybe the person who was unwilling to step up. You know, we're the Israelites who are sitting up on top of the ridge listening to Goliath, the blasphemy God, but we're too afraid of the giant that stands before us to move. We're not David who is so after God's own heart that he is driven, despite his size, despite his age, he is driven to take on the Goliath, the giant, head-on, unafraid, and just willing to trust that God will see him through. A lot of times we're not that person. And in the case of the Good Samaritan, a lot of times we're not the Good Samaritan either. We think that we are the Good Samaritan. We want to be even the Good Samaritan. But a lot of times we don't take the time. I mean, really think over your life and your situation. How often have you stopped when you have saw somebody who just looks spiritually down, who looks to be hurting, who looks to be broken, who looks to be sad, How often have you paused to really help that person, to give that person a word of biblical encouragement? Not just to say, oh, well, it's going to be okay, everything's going to work out, to give some worldly thing that doesn't actually mean anything and actually offer a helping hand in the faith. Actually reaching out to people who are in need of the faith that we do pass every single day, whether we realize it or not, whether we're paying attention or not. It's not that we always see the person and we cross to the other side of the street to avoid them. Sometimes we're so caught up in our own ways that we don't see the spiritual issues that are facing us as we walk through our life. We don't see how outwardly broken people are because of their spiritual needs and their separation from God. And so we keep on walking and we walk past them and we don't offer them the help that they need. And that's exactly what we should be doing as Christians. We should be turning to the broken. We should be seeking those who are spiritually beaten, spiritually broken, who are down, depressed, sad, lonely, and who are in need of what we have. Because what we have is life-giving. It is not, and, and, and it's about joy and peace and hope and love. And then it's about so much more because it's the promise of an eternal life. Because the biggest thing that most people are afraid of, whether they will admit it or not, is death. People want to live as though death doesn't exist because it, it, they're so afraid of it. People are so afraid of dying that they want to pretend like they will never die in order to not have to worry about the fact that death comes. But death is a reality for all people. Ten out of ten people die. A hundred percent of people will face that statistic. A hundred percent of people will die. And so we must take people the truth that they need to receive eternal life so they do not have to face an eternal damnation in hell. 
It's a hard word, especially in today's society. A lot of Christians even don't want to talk about the realities of hell. But our Bibles make it clear that hell is a reality and it awaits those who do not turn to God in repentance. May we not be a reason that people don't turn to God in repentance. May we not be people who walk past others who are in need and who are broken. May we not be like the scribe and the Pharisee. May we not avoid the people who God has purposed us to reach out to. And really, that includes all people who have yet to come to the life-saving faith of Jesus Christ. People are in desperate need of salvation, and whether they are showing it or not, they are broken. The person that you work with who doesn't know God, they need God, and they are hurting. Whether you can physically see it or not, they are hurting. You know this from your past life, when you felt empty, when you felt like a ship without a rudder, when you had no direction in your life before you came to Christ. You know how it feels to live without Christ, to have the void, to know that you're separated from something, but not to know what it is, and to be searching to fill that void all of your life and unable to find it until somehow you came to know Christ. And praise God that you did. But now it's time to step out of your comfort zone, step out of the things that, and reach into things that sometimes are messy, that are sometimes dirty, that are sometimes going to hold you up from the path that you're walking on. Yes, you are on a way somewhere. You have something to do, just like the Pharisee and the scribe did. But that was no excuse not to look on a broken person with mercy and with grace and to help them in any way that you possibly could. And that's how we should treat those who do not know Christ as spiritually broken and in need of what we have. And may we do our best to share it with them to the best of our ability and to be the best light into this world. Because that's what we are called to do, is to be a light into the world. So let us not walk past the broken but let us stop and care for those in need and be the blessing that they need and not the curse. May we be willing to give whatever we can to see that they're made right, to take the time away from our schedule, stopping us from what we need to do, and to nurse that person back to health just like the Good Samaritan did. Because let it not be said of the church that the world is doing more to help other lost souls than the church is doing to help lost souls. May we not be so focused on what we think is righteous that we don't stop to continue to help other people who are broken and who are in need of what we were once in need of. But may we give freely as we have received freely, and may we help the broken every chance we get, every opportunity we get, no matter how inconvenient it is. May we not put our own needs and our own interests ahead of those who also have needs and interests in this world and who are broken and struggling and who without us may never experience the light of Christ. All right, so this next one is a little bit different, but it's actually kind of a story that I want to expound on a little bit. But I saw a guy the other day walking down the street, and suddenly he stopped to put on his belt. And all I could think was, has he been carrying around his belt forgetting to put it on? I mean, it just seems strange, right? I've never been driving down the road and saw someone in front of me, like walking down the sidewalk, suddenly stop and begin to put a belt on. That's just an experience that I've not had before, but it really made me wonder why you would be carrying it and how you would forget that you have it. But in another way to look at that, we could think about what God has given us that we so often fail to use as Christians. The greatest example I can think of this is the armor of God. The armor that God gives us in order to protect ourselves against the enemy. We see this in Ephesians 6, chapter or sorry, chapter 6 verses 10 through 18, which says, "Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What a great and a mighty promise that is that God has given us. But we have the option to not clothe ourselves in this armor, which makes us, you know, acceptable. I'm lost on the word I was thinking of there. But it makes us able to be attacked by the enemy so much easier than when if we had the things of God on. We shouldn't be walking around without putting these things on, without wearing these things, without having these things. They do us no good in our hand in the moment that battle strikes. We don't see people who are preparing for battle get ready when the battle strikes. They are prepared when they go into battle. They know that they're going to face battle just as we know we're going to face spiritual battles every day. And if we want to be able to have these spiritual battles, we don't just need to be carrying the armor of God beside us, but we need to be wearing it, fully ready to use it at any time. It does us no good. Just like that guy's belt did him no good in his hands. A belt will not help you to hold your pants up unless the belt is around your waist fit firmly. And just like the armor of God, if we don't put on these things, if we don't walk in these things daily, they're going to do us no good. But if we have them prepared, as soon as the enemy attacks us, we are prepared. We can pull the shield up before us if it's already with us and where it needs to be. We won't have to stop and get ready, but we can be prepared in season and out of season, ready any time the enemy attacks us. Now, in like manner to this, the next note was about the sword and the shield. And it's just a small thing, but I wrote, a shield is something anyone can use, but you have to be trained to use a sword effectively. Now, obviously, I know that there is training that can go involved in using a shield. However, if you've ever played with Nerf guns, Nerf has some shields out there. You can hand a child a shield, and they understand that the principle is to hold that shield in front of you to block an attack. To block the nerf darts that are getting fired at you, you just hold that in front of you and now they're not going to hit you. In the same way, a shield will work practically that way in any application because it's meant to protect you from an attack and all you have to do is simply hold it in front of you in the direction that the attack is coming from. But a sword does not operate in the same way. And the Bible said that we should have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To properly use a sword... To be effective with a sword, one must be properly trained. Yes, a sword is sharp, and yes, you can swing it around. But if you were to be faced with somebody with just the littlest bit of skill, and you had no skill with a sword, you will lose. Because a person who knows how to properly wield the sword is going to have a better chance of winning. They're going to know what to do, how to use it, and how to even block the attacks of somebody less skilled than they are. And so the more skilled you are with God's word, the better you are at wielding it, at using it, and how effective you'll be when attacks come. If we look at Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he pulls the sword out because 
the enemy also pours, pulls the sword out and attempts to use the word against Jesus. For example, he takes him to the top of a mountain and he says, jump off. For the Lord will send his angels to protect you. For the word says that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus responds back and says, yes, but the word also says that you may not test the Lord your God. Ultimately, blocking the attack that the enemy threw at him and taking an attack back. And in the end, because of the word that Jesus possessed, because of the sword and his ability to use it effectively, he overcame the temptation of the enemy. Just as we can overcome the enemy's temptation when we properly know God's word. We should be studying it and reading it and using it daily to become better and better equipped and better and better at using it. We should become more effective as time goes on with using God's word. That is what our goal and our mission should be, is to use God's word to the best of our abilities and to become as effective with it as possible. But that only comes through using it and through studying and through trying to get better with it. But we can get better with God's word, and we can use it as the shield in this life. So let's not just carry around the things that, give, that God has given us, but let us use them for the best of our ability. Let us use what God has blessed us with every day. Be equipped with it, be clothed with it, and not just have it in our hand and not be ready for when the need arises. Next up is titled, When God Doesn't Make Sense. At times, we are unable to understand the why behind what God asks us to do. But the truth is, we often are not able to understand the reason that God has. But we can see clearly in Scripture that if we do all He asks, we will be blessed and even amazed. It doesn't make sense to walk around a city seven times and blow trumpets. But obedience to God's plan leads to victory. Naaman couldn't understand why Elijah wouldn't just command him healed. Or how washing seven times in the Jordan would have any effect on his leprosy. Even his own men pointed out he would be more willing to do something complex than this simple request. Despite not being able to understand the why, Naaman obeyed the message from the man of God and was fully healed. These are just a few examples from the scripture that show that the blessing that can come from trusting God, even when it may not make sense to you. From our view today, it is easy to think, well, of course they obeyed. But we have to remember that they didn't know the full story that we do. They had to step forward in blind faith, trusting that God was in control, just as we must do today when we don't understand why God tells us to do certain things, such as tithing, being baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit, praying, or sharing the gospel. We can't always and won't always understand why God wants us to do certain things. But we can trust that it is the right thing to do, and it will be for our best interest. We can trust that God is going to do everything that he says to do, and that everything he tells us to do has a reason and a purpose behind it. We don't need to question God. I know that can sound cliche. It can sound outdated. It can sound like old school thinking or old school knowledge. But the truth of the matter simply is that we can trust that if God is real, if he created the universe and if he created us, and then he inspired the Bible to be written in the way that it was, we can trust that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives and that the things he says we should do are the things that we ought to do. There should be no reason to question God on such things. Instead, we should simply trust that the creator of the universe, the one who knows all, knows better than we know and that we shouldn't have to ask why because God simply is the one who can give us the greatest things to do. I mean, 
if God is telling you to do something, then there has to be a reason and a purpose behind it. We shouldn't ask why. We should simply obey God and allow the why to unfold later in our lives. If we don't understand it in the moment, that doesn't mean that we won't understand it later. And it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't look for full understanding, but should trust in God. I've heard it said in the past, you know, if your employer asks you to jump, you should ask how, or tells you to jump, you should ask how high. And that's a great and a fine analogy in the world. But a better thing to think about is if somebody, if your employer tells you to jump, you should jump and then to the best of your ability every time. And that's the way that it should be with God. When God asks us to do something, we shouldn't simply just say, okay, God, but how high? Or but this or but that. If God says jump, we jump the best that we can. We do the best that we can to do what God has told us to do because we don't know what could lie ahead. In the time that it takes to ask the question, the reason that we were supposed to jump could come upon us. So we should trust that God has a plan and a purpose and trust that God has a reason for what he's asking us to do. But sometimes that reason is because God is looking for obedience. If God had a, gave you a reason for everything that you had to do, and he told you, well, listen, it's because of this, and you were like, oh, well, that makes complete sense. I want to do that because it's better for me. That wouldn't be a true sign of your faith. It wouldn't truly show that you believe and trust in God. It would show that you believe in logic and trust in logic. But that's not what God is asking us to do. God is asking us to blindly follow him in faith, believing that what he says is true, believing that he is God, believing that he has our best interest at heart. That's what we should be doing with God. God has not given us a reason to not trust him. Why would God tell us to do things that are unimportant? If baptism is unimportant, why did Jesus say that we must be baptized? Why did the disciples baptize in the days of Jesus and Jesus didn't rebuke them for doing so? And why did they continue to baptize in the book of Acts. All throughout it, people are baptized. If baptism wasn't important, it seems as though Jesus wouldn't have said, go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then we wouldn't see the completion of that in the book of Acts as they begin to baptize people in that name, which is Jesus. But We see people baptized in Jesus' name time and time again in the book of Acts. Why would these things be in our Bible? Why would God tell us to do these things if it wasn't of importance? It's of importance and it is important to salvation. It is a part of the plan of salvation. You shouldn't question it. It shouldn't. Be, it's not our position to say, "Well, it's just, it's just taking a bath and some water." That's not our place or our position. Our position is to simply trust God and to do what God is calling us or telling us to do within His Word. That's like asking, "Well, why shouldn't I commit adultery?" Nobody has questions for something like that because we obviously know that that is wrong. However, people make so many plays about other things, questioning this, questioning that. We should trust all truth that God has given us and trust all things that God is calling us to do. Sometimes it wouldn't make sense to complete the calling. Why should I go talk to this person? Well, I don't know, but maybe God has a reason and a purpose for it. Maybe that God is leading you to somebody specific. Maybe that overwhelming desire to do that is going to lead somebody to be saved. If everybody in the Bible asked why, and refused to do things because they wouldn't, they didn't understand it, then there would be nothing in the Bible to write about because nobody would have ever got anything done because a lot of what God asked to do didn't make sense. Noah built a boat in the desert where it never rained. 
but he did it. He didn't understand it, I'm sure. Because if, if all Noah had was what we have of God telling him in the Bible, then it would not have made complete sense. But he trusted God, and he trusted that to save his family, he needed to build the boat, and so he built the boat. Why would you walk around a city seven times? This doesn't make any sense. But in obedience to God, the walls fell, and they were able to conquer the city as God instructed them to do. Why would you need to go wash in a dirty river seven times when there are better rivers in the land that you came from, like in the case of Naaman? Because God is looking for complete obedience and trust in him and to see whether or not you're going to do as he says without an explanation. We shouldn't need an explanation of God to do the things of God. He is God. The magnificence of all of that name, that title, excuse me, that title implies. He is Lord of Lords, the Almighty, the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There should be no other reason to ask why but to simply trust that God knows what's best, that there is a reason behind it, and that by following obedience and following God obediently, we will be blessed. And that's what we see through those stories. Everybody who was obedient to what God told them to do was blessed for doing so. And we can believe that we also will be blessed when we do the things that don't make sense to us in the moment. And now we've made it to the last note of the day. Titled, Does God's Love Save You? I have heard Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, that says, Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, used to make a case for the false doctrine of once saved, always saved. Those who believe this make statements claiming that because nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing can separate us from the salvation we have received. What? God's love and salvation, while they come from the same place, are not the same thing. The Bible says that God loved us while we were yet sinners, but no one would claim that they were saved while they were still lost in sin with no knowledge of God. If we apply this verse to the issue of salvation, then that would have to mean that we are saved by God's love alone. But we all know that we are not saved by God's love. We are saved by faith in God. It is through God's love that a way to be saved has been made. But without faith in the God who supplies said love, we cannot and will not be saved. We know this is true because if all it took to be saved was God's love, then all people would be saved and hell would be empty. Because we know that God loves all people even when they don't know or love him in return. John 3.16-17 makes that abundantly clear. When we read that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, we don't need to attribute a deeper meaning into salvation. We simply need to trust the word at face value. Our God loves us, and nothing is ever able to change that. And praise God that his love is so great that anyone can be saved, and any sin can be forgiven. Our salvation comes by faith and is shown in the way that we live our life in full accordance to the word of God. I could try to add some things to that note as I often do on the end of these different things, but I really feel like that speaks for itself. And just to confirm it again and reiterate the point, yes, God loves us immensely, and there's nothing, no circumstance, there's nothing in this life that can separate us from how God feels about us and the love that he has for us. Job faced the most difficult life and the diff most difficult situations, and the enemy did all that he could do to separate Job from his faith. But that's different. Because even in that time, it did not mean that God no longer loved Job. God loved Job through it all, through every situation, and Job continued to trust in God, especially when he had the interaction with God. But salvation 
and God's love are separate. They're two different things. Salvation was made available through the love of God, but our salvation is not in our lives. We are not saved by love. We are saved by grace alone through faith. It is our faith that we place in Christ, our belief in Christ, and that faith, how it changes our lives, that is able to save us. I hope that this podcast episode has been a great blessing to you today. I always enjoy being able to share the different things that God has given me throughout the week with you. Um, And I guess that's going to do it for this one. My mind is not here today. I don't know if that came through in the podcast up until this point, but I'm just a little tired, a little wore out. But I wanted to get this podcast out for you guys so that way it would be out at the normal time on the normal schedule. We will see you guys again on Friday for the Better Together podcast where I'm joined, as always, by my lovely wife, Lavery. But until then, God bless. (laughs) 